Hey, I'm Maria Almeida, and this is the Understanding Podcast, where the art and science of language and technology meet. In case you're wondering, this is our very first episode. Back in 1986, Whoopi Goldberg said in an interview for NBC, An actress can only play a woman. I'm an actor. I can play anything. Fast forward to 2018, and most female actors call themselves actors, not actresses. If I may be so honored to have all the female nominees in every category stand with me in this room tonight. The actors, Meryl, if you do it, everybody else will, come on. The filmmakers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the cinematographer, the, the composers, the songwriters, the, 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 the designers. That was Frances McDormand at the Oscars asking all the female actors to stand up with her at her acceptance speech for, ironically enough, the Best Actress Award. The truth is, gender-specific nouns in the English language are now often considered inappropriate or even sexist. The waiters and waitresses have now become servers, the stewards and stewardess are now flight attendants, and the policemen and policewomen are now just officers. I find this particularly intriguing. Sure, language changes every day, new words are added to our dictionaries every year, now, if you didn't know already, do you know what a frenemy is? Yes. Americans. You do. Okay. And I Julie say Americans. We're Americans. All because? Because the Oxford English Dictionary is out with some new words, and one of them is American. Yes. Because some people pronounce it that way. Another one that's in there, which I think is it's way overdue, moobs. Merriam-Webster is expanding their vocabulary. The latest edition of their collegiate dictionary includes dozens of new words, and many of them are signs of the time. New entries include terms like tweet, which can be used as a noun and a verb, obviously. Helicopter parent for those hovering, overbearing parents. Boomerang child, adult children who move back with their parents. And bromance, which, of course, describes heterosexual males who have an extremely close friendship. But those changes are not as significant and don't seem to draw the same level of attention as the efforts to make language less biased and more neutral when it comes to gender. And that's definitely not something exclusive to the English language. France was recently caught in the middle of a heavy discussion over the future of its own language, just because a school textbook suggested a more inclusive version of French. And here in Portugal, where I'm from and where most of us at Unbabel are based, we've been having a similar discussion. Portuguese, like French, is a very gender-marked language and has no neutral grammatical gender. Some people want to change that and have made a few proposals, but I'm not entirely sure it will work. I'm a feminist myself, but I'm also a writer with a kind of an obsessive-compulsive disorder when it comes to language. So after hearing a lot about this, I figured I couldn't really make up my mind around the subject. Does the language we speak promote sexist views? Should we consciously change it? And would a change in language improve women's status in society? Is it worth the trouble? Apparently, and I should have known this, the answers to these questions are not quite so simple. It's a very tricky question. <laughs> it's really hard to give a, give a good answer to, to this question at this point. That is a very complicated question. And um, I wrote part of a book about that. <laughs> and there's no quick answer. Those you just heard were the three linguists I interviewed for this story. And you'll hear a lot more from them throughout this episode. In spite of the obvious complexity of the issue, 
I managed to get a much better understanding of how language and society change. All that coming up next in the first episode of the Understanding Podcast. Should language be more gender neutral? What is that? On November 2017, France was caught in the middle of a heated debate over the future of its own language. A school textbook promoting a more inclusive version of French had been released, making purists fly off the handle. Au prix d'une dénaturation de l'écriture. Par le ministre de l'Éducation. Je trouve que ça ajoute une complexité qui n'est pas nécessaire. La cause, elle est bonne, c'est celle de l'égalité homme-femme, bien entendu. Mais, mais je ne pense pas que ce soit le, le juste combat de mettre ça sur, le, sur une façon finalement d'abîmer notre, notre langue. The Academy française, considered by some as France's ultimate authority on the French language, issued a furious statement right after the book's release. Dans une déclaration, les immortels mettent en garde contre l'écriture inclusive qu'ils comparent à un péril mortel. Elle conduit à une langue désunie, disparate et crée une confusion qui confine à l'illisibilité. Les mots sont forts. Jean-Marie Rouard, l'un des académiciens, persiste et signe. Si vous commencez à démonter les éléments au gré des communautés, à ce moment-là, vous allez avoir énormément de problèmes parce que toutes les communautés vont vouloir, tous les groupes de pression, voudront faire une langue à leur mesure. Ça sera plus cette langue universelle. L'écriture inclusive n'est pas prête d'être intégrée au dictionnaire. The document, signed by the Academy's 40 members, only five of whom are women, by the way, describe the inclusive version of the language as an aberration that puts French in mortal danger and concluded that inclusive writing has no place in the country's grammar books. However, and I could totally see that coming, not everyone was happy with the statement or the Academy's role over the years, for that matter. The Academy, which was founded in the 17th century with the goal of regulating and purifying the French language, whatever that is, is today just an old and conservative institution. You know, every time there is, um, you know, some, some of these debates, people always say, oh, what, do they, what does the Académie Française think about this? Um, y- you know, I think that probably... You know, they, they are a ling- linguistically oriented institution in some sense. Um, but above all, you know, they're, they're, very, they're very old and prestigious. Um, and also, they're extremely socially conservative. That was Heather Burnett, a research scientist at the French Science Foundation. When I talked to her a couple of weeks ago, she also explained to me how the Académie Française was formed and who their members are. I was a bit surprised. One thing that I think is important to understand about the Académie Française is that, you know, the, the, none of their members are actually uh, linguists or people whose jobs are to systematically study the French language. Um, mostly, the Académie is made up of writers, also some historians, philosophers, and also a fair number of politicians. So, you know, the, the, it's not a group of people whose, um, whose expertise really is in the systematic study of of the French language. So, for example, their, their head 
Hélène Carrère-Dancas. Um, she's a Soviet historian. Okay, so so she's I think very good at what she does, but she she is not someone with um, you know any substantive linguistic training. However, regardless of their second guess knowledge of the French language, they did accomplish one thing with that statement. They sparked even more outrage among the dissident and feminist crowd, who defend that a gendered nature of language promotes sexism. The thing is, French is a tricky language when it comes to grammatical gender which, by the way, is not related to biological sex. Sure. So uh, French is what linguists call a, a grammatical gender language. And what this means is that, that French grammar kind of puts every noun of the language into a class, uh, which then determines uh, patterns of agreement with other, other elements in the sentence. Right? So, so some languages um, have very many uh, gender classes, but French only has two, um, what we call the masculine class and the, the feminine class. This means that, in French, you have masculine and feminine pronouns, nouns, and adjectives. And it can be confusing, especially if those nouns refer to humans. Um, with most human nouns, there's a very clear relationship between grammatical gender, so whether or not you're, you're masculine or, or feminine, and social gender, right? So whether or not you talk about men or you talk about women. So, um, for example, with, with most human nouns, um, if you use the feminine, right, you say une journaliste, une écrivaine, une ministre, then you have to be talking about female journalists, female writers, female ministers, etc. Now, uh, with the masculine versions of these nouns, right, un journaliste, un écrivain, un ministre, um, this is where there's a bit of a controversy. And the gender discrepancy is even more predominant when you use the noun's plural form. Why? Because in French, the masculine form always prevails over the feminine, even if you're referring to a mixed audience, just as if there are only men in the room. The relevant question here, though, is, does this structure in language promote sexism like some people suggest? And if we change the language, does it trigger a change in society? Or is it the other way around? To explain all that, we first need to understand that each language is different. And I believe there's no better person to explain it other than Elena Munish, senior linguist researcher at Mbabel. First thing Elena told me when we talked about this was that not all languages are the same, that languages evolve in different directions. But basically you have uh, gender, very gender-marked languages like Portuguese, French, Romance languages in general. And you also have genderless or neutral gender languages like uh, Turkish or the most common one usually people talk about is Finnish because it has a pronoun that is for hit, he and she. So you basically have these two big contrasts between very rich morphological um, masculine feminine languages and gender neutral languages. So it's easy to see that languages progress through time. And when it comes to grammatical gender, that's really no different. Romance languages like French, Portuguese or Spanish, for instance, lost their neutral grammatical gender from Latin along the way. Finnish kept it to this day, like Helena Munich mentioned before. And English, well, Old English used to have grammatical genders, believe it or not. All nouns were gendered masculine, feminine, or neuter, pretty much like modern German or even French. 
But does this mean that in countries where people speak more gender-neutral languages, there's more gender equality? Is there less gender discrimination in Finland than in France? Well, not necessarily. If the pace of change that has happened over the last 12 years continues to hold true in the future, it will take us another 100 years to close the global gender gap. That was Sadia Zahidi, the head of education, gender and employment initiatives at the World Economic Forum. And that statement she made is quite astonishing, if you ask me. But in spite of how long it will take us to get there, you have a few countries where the gender gap is shorter than others. One of them is actually Finland. If you look at the Global Gender Gap Report of 2017, you may notice that Finland is the third most gender-equal country in the world. Quite impressive. And yet France is number 11, and Portugal number 33. However, countries like Turkey or Hungary, both countries with more gender-neutral languages, are much further down on the list. Hungary is number 103, and Turkey, well... Turkey is number 131, on a list made of 144 countries in total. So, maybe changing language is not all it takes. But is it at all relevant? Or is it trivial? The thing is, most of those who are pushing for a more gender-neutral language think that some language traits promote sexist views. But it's not that simple, according to Heather Burnett from the French Science Foundation. Um, I think that it's important uh, to distinguish, you know, between the language, right, which is sort of its expressions, the way people normally interpret them, um, and then how the speakers of the language um, choose to use it and the kinds of things that they choose to communicate. So, you know, uh, I mean, certainly in France, as, as unfortunately everywhere, everywhere else, there are, um, you know, many people who hold sexist views. And certainly the French language, you know, gives them ample ways to express those views. But, you know, for people who are interested in in equality between men and women, um, you know, French, as as we were just saying, provides, you know, also provides ample ways of of being gender inclusive. So um, I don't think that the, you know, French language in in itself promotes sexist views. However, as Heather Burnett puts it, Changing language is not trivial at all. So, you know, what's clear is that the particular language that you use, it it communicates certain information. And so, you know, by changing, when you change your language even slightly, you're going to slightly change the information that you communicate. And we also, I think, have reason to believe that even very slight changes in information can affect uh, non-linguistic aspects of the world. And a good example to show this is job ads. But many studies of English have shown that, you know, if you write a job ad um, with a, using a masculine pronoun, right, so you, you say something like, you know, the applicant must send his CV, then you're going to actually receive uh, fewer applications from women than if you write the job ad with uh, inclusive language, right? So if you write something like the applicant must send his or her CV. So, you know, from this slight difference in language, you know, you, you, there is a difference um, in the world in, in how many applications from, from women you get. Um, so presumably, you know, if you get uh, fewer female applicants, then, uh, you know, presumably you'll end up hiring fewer women, and then you'll have a kind of gender imbalance in your area. Now, if this is a prestigious area, 
then you're, you're going to end up kind of rep reproducing uh, gender-based inequality. So, you know, I think there's pretty good evidence um, that, you know, changing the language of a job ad is kind of an easy way to contribute to eliminating uh, gender imbalances in, in prestigious areas. After, you know, whether or not language plays as big a role as certain kinds of actions or, or conditions or other, other kinds of things, right, that aren't linguistic, um, I don't know, you know, probably not, right? So, yeah, we should take a closer look at how we speak and write, you know, how we communicate in general. But what happens when the language you speak does not allow you to be gender neutral or more inclusive? How can you change language? Should that change be imposed? To answer these questions, we probably need to look at how language changes over time. I mentioned this earlier, but English, or at least Old English, used to have grammatical genders. And somewhere between the 13th and 14th century, the grammatical system changed. So why did English lose its grammatical genders? Did it have anything to do with gender equality? Mm, probably not. That is a very complicated question. And um, I wrote part of a book about that, <laughs> and there's no quick answer. I think there are a lot of factors. One of the important ones is the amount of language contact that English experienced in that period. So in Britain, you had Old Norse speakers who were living throughout the north of England, and Old Norse and Old English were, we think, being spoken side by side. That is probably a really critical part of the puzzle here. You then have the Norman conquest. You have more language contact happening. So that's certainly a piece of the puzzle. There are also things about the inflectional system in Old English that were already weakened so that you could lose gender. But I think language contact is a big part of the picture. That was Anne Curzan, professor of English, linguistics, and education at the University of Michigan, and author of a book called gender shifts in the history of English. And this is a great example of how we can have subtle changes in language, you know, that occur gradually over time without most of us even realizing it. And those changes are usually very successful. The intriguing part, though, is when we consciously impose change in language, when someone or a group of people tells you how you should speak, how you should write, and how you should communicate in your own language. That, according to Anne Curzan from the University of Michigan, is very, very hard to do. Most of the time, conscious language change is very hard to enact. We as speakers do not tend to follow rules that we are told to follow. So if you tell us to stop using one word or to use it differently, we have a lot of trouble paying attention to that. However, this doesn't necessarily mean that it has never happened before. It's improbable, yes, but not impossible. And Anne Curzan gave me a really good example of a conscious language change in English that goes all the way back to the women's liberation movements in the 70s. Yes, uh, you know, they say a woman's place is in the home, and uh, I suppose as long as she's in the home, she might as well be in the kitchen. The 60s and 70s saw the emergence of a second-wave feminism in the U.S., which brought many women to the streets in protest, demanding equal rights. Like journalist and feminist Gloria Steinem. I wouldn't have admitted the equality and inequality in my own life, even though I was continually discriminated against in journalism. 
journalism which allows women to write about women and black people to write about black people and keeps the editorial decisions in white male hands. Or feminist author and activist Betty Friedan, or Sandra Hayden, or Mary King, and many others. However, what's interesting here is that social movements also demanded a change in language related to the use of generic he, like Anne Curzan explains. So in English, we had for a couple hundred years that we were supposed to use he to talk about a generic person. This started in the late 18th century, went through the 1980s, where we were told that it was grammatically, quote unquote, correct to say, for example, a teacher should learn his students' names. And that in the 1970s, many feminists pointed out that that was sexist to act like the generic person was masculine and that the pronoun he does not encompass everyone. Um, and I will say that I myself, I identify as a woman, my pronoun is she. And if someone says, a teacher should learn his students' names, I do not feel included in that sentence. That's not my pronoun. I'm a teacher, but um, I don't use the pronoun his. So there was a conscious effort to change that construction. Started by what we call second wave feminism in the 1970s to say using generic he is not okay, it's sexist, we need to come up with something different. And for a long time, for then the next 20 or 30 years, the advice was to use he or she or he slash she to be more inclusive. And what is really shocking is that it worked. Why? Because it was integrated in a social movement. But I think in this case it worked because you had a call for a language change that aligned with really important social changes. So this was a time where people were arguing for more equal pay and more equal rights for women and therefore changing the language to also be more inclusive for women was coming together with a social movement which helped it be more successful. And that was not only the case in the US with English, but also in other parts of the globe. Heather Burnett from the French Science Foundation studied a similar phenomenon in France. Heather and her colleague, Olivier Bonami, were interested in investigating language change and social change in the 80s and the 90s. He and I, we were interested in kind of investigating the relationship between language change and social change and under what conditions um, things like overt, overt linguistic prescriptions or language policies, right? So these kind of guidelines and, and rules for, for language use uh, can actually help trigger or, um, or maybe speed up language change. So they focused on grammatical gender and based their analysis on the debates of the French parliament in the 80s and 90s. So we ended up looking at um, whether French politicians use a masculine form of a noun when addressing a woman. So if they say something like Madame le ministre, so to say Madame minister, so the le there is the, is the masculine marking on uh, ministre. Um, or if they use a feminine uh, a feminine grammatical gender. So they said Madame la ministre. So, so uh, we see the, the la is the, is the feminine mark um, since the 1980s. However, what Heather and Olivier realized 
was that even though there was a linguistic prescription in the 80s that advised the use of feminine grammatical gender when referring to women, it had very little impact. As Heather explains... So in um, 1986, uh, Prime Minister Laurent Fabius uh, issued a statement which uh, mandated the use of feminine grammatical gender when referring to women in the Assemblée Nationale and also in official documents. And um, so, yeah, so he basically just said, okay, everyone, now we have to, what we have to do is um, we have to stop saying le ministre for, for, uh, for female ministers. Instead, we say la ministre. But that wasn't enough for politicians to change how they addressed women in the parliaments. And according to Heather, very few people use the feminine grammatical gender. It seemed the policy had no effect. Fast forward to 1998, 12 years later, and there's a completely different scenario. Because in um, 1998, um, Prime Minister Lionel Jospin at that point issued a statement that basically you know, reiterated Fabius's policy. So, so he didn't make up a new policy, but he just kind of in a, in a very official statement said, you know, hey guys, remember we're supposed to be talking like this. Remember we're supposed to be saying um, la ministre instead of le ministre. And in this case, so in, in contrast to what we saw in the 80s, now there was a huge rise of the feminine. And um, if you look sort of overall, when you're talking about women, um, the feminine Uh, expression la ministre basically replaces the masculine le ministre within a year. Why did that shift in language happen in the 90s and not in the 80s? Well, according to Heather Burnett, the difference was a social context. So the mid-1990s was a time of great social change in France. Um, and in particular, this was um, the start of what, what was called the, the Paris, or what is called the, the Parité movement. The Parité movement was a political movement in France that demanded for equal representation of men and women in elected assemblies. And it was particularly successful in the late 1990s. But its you know, first major successes was in um, the, the enacting of a constitutional amendment um, and also a law making equal representation on electoral lists a goal for the government. And this is in 1998-1999. This brought the issue of the role of women in society to the spotlight, as well as language change, which made it much easier to consciously change the way people communicate, and therefore be more inclusive. However, this whole thing kept me thinking that gender-neutral language is really not just about women. Like Elena Munich, senior linguist researcher at Anababel, told me, not everyone's comfortable if you make language just more inclusive for women and ignore everybody else. I think you have to realize that a lot of people may not feel comfortable with this binary system and we have to make we have to make every human being feel comfortable with who he she is or who han as in Finnish who they are right we have to give room for all the people to feel comfortable with their personality the way they are and to feel integrated into society This is why in English, some people are pushing for the use of singular they as a gender-neutral pronoun and let people choose their own personal pronouns. For instance, in the University of Michigan, where Anne Curzan is a professor, students get to choose their personal pronoun when they register for classes. And this whole thing goes back to the movement in the 70s to replace the generic he to he slash she, as Anne Curzan explains. 
And this gets back to what we mean by an inclusive pronoun. So when we dis- when there was a movement starting in the 1970s to say generic he is not okay, the, quote, the solution was use he or she or he slash she or make the whole thing plural. However, in the last few years, there has been a real push to include singular they as a gender neutral pronoun for those who don't fit in the binary system. And for those speakers, they say, I'm not a he, I'm not a she. So if you say he or she or he slash she, that doesn't actually include me. And these folks who identify outside the male-female binary have said, I would rather, I need a different pronoun. And many of them have opted for singular they as a non-binary pronoun. In the end, it's really about respect. As far as I'm concerned, respecting people's pronouns is part of respecting people. That if someone says, this is my pronoun and my pronoun is they, then it is respectful to use someone's pronoun. In the same way that if someone says, my name is Anne, it is respectful to call that person Anne as opposed to calling them whatever name you think fits them. (laughs) So, and here we see... Uh, I think a very powerful alignment, which is the use of they as a non-binary pronoun and the use of they historically as a gender neutral singular pronoun, which means that style guides are starting to move toward they as a singular inclusive pronoun. So getting back to where we started, should we push for a more gender neutral language? Well, as you have probably seen by now, when we're debating language, we're almost always debating more than language. And in fact, when we're specifically talking about grammatical gender, well, I guess it's really the perfect storm because it kind of combines our language anxieties with our social gender anxieties, which is probably why this topic draws so much attention. In the end, I think Ken Kurzan from the University of Michigan really helps put things in perspective when it comes to gender-neutral language. And certainly some people will say changing language is trivial. My response to that is nobody's saying you just change language. You should also give women equal pay and give everyone equal access to opportunities, right? So no one's saying change the language and ignore other inequities in the system. But couldn't we change language to be more inclusive as part of the same effort? And what we do know is that if you change the way people speak, you change what other people hear. And so if in English we're using singular they, which includes everyone, and I talk about the future president of the United States and what they might do, well, that opens the door that anybody gets to be the next president of the United States. It doesn't put any bias in there that I expect that this person will always be a man or will always, you know, so I think it it changes what people hear. Does that change the world? (laughs) I mean, at some level, sure, because it changes what people hear. 
Ultimately, language reflects who we are. We can see the world in black and white, or we can learn to live with everything in between. Thank you for listening. This was the first episode of the Understanding Podcast, where the art and science of language and technology meet. I'm Maria Almeida. Subscribe at theunderstanding.ai to receive the next episode straight in your inbox and other interesting articles, interviews, and podcasts. The Understanding Podcast was produced by Bernardo Fons, Rafaela Cortes, Matthew Caroso, and by me, Maria Almeida. See you soon. What is that?